We're going to be reading from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Thank you, Jilly. Good morning, everybody. Um, this time last year, I was preaching on a psalm from Sam's Habit, and it's a lovely habit, but it's much better being here uh, in person, seeing all your lovely smiling faces. Um, so it's a real privilege to speak on this wonderful psalm. Uh, let's just ask for God's help, shall we, as we, as we approach his word. Father God, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you've revealed yourself uh, through uh, your word, uh, that you've revealed um, the way that your mercy uh, reaches each one of us. And we pray this morning that you would give us uh, open ears and open hearts to, to hear what you have to say uh, in your word this morning. Uh, please encourage us, please, please give us a clearer vision of you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I want to think this morning a little about, a bit about motivation. Um, what inspires us? What drives us? What's the fuel in our tank? Um, I don't know if you've seen much of the Olympics over the last few weeks, uh, but I've been marvelling at, at the skill and the prowess of those athletes, but also the kind of the, the motivation that they have to train and train and train to be the best that they can be. It's one of the reasons I've never become an Olympian. <laughs> uh, the other reason that I mean talent but um, but you need incredible mental toughness don't you to, to reach the top and I've got some some pictures here of people here's Simone Biles they, they say she's she's one of the best gymnasts has ever been she says surround yourself with those who see greatness within you even when you don't see it yourself well Adam Peaty incredible British swimmer if you can visualize if you can do it if you can think it you can achieve it. Or Megan Rapino, the probably the most famous uh, women's soccer player in the world. Um, do what you have to. Step outside yourself. Be more. Be better. Be bigger than you've ever been before. And my favourite, he's not from this Olympics, but I had to put it in. You say, I know what I can do, so I never doubt myself. <laughs> and I kind of think, if I could run that fast, I'd probably be the same, actually. Um, but it's interesting to see what drives people, isn't it? But as we look at this psalm today, I want us to, to think about a source of power, of motivation, of inspiration that surpasses everything else. I don't know what you think of those quotes, but this surpasses everything. Now, this psalm is, is one of the songs of ascent, uh, the songs that the pilgrims sang as they travelled literally uphill towards Jerusalem. But 
But Psalm 130, uh, which is known as the Dipofundis Psalm, is a song of ascent in a more fundamental way because it starts in the depths of despair. And in eight short verses, it reaches such heights of confidence and assurance that by the end, the writer is proclaiming to all Israel, put your hope in the Lord. And you think, wow, that's quite a change from despair to such confidence and assurance. What happened? What lifted him from those depths to those heights? And whatever it is, is that something that we can access as well? I want some of that. So let's dive in. And actually, we're diving down into verse one. Have a look at that. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. He's in despair. He's crying out to God. You can sense his desperation. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. It's dramatic. It's heartfelt. But why? Well, verse three reveals the reason. If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? The depth that he's talking about is a deep sense of his own sin, of his unworthiness before God and his own ability, inability and powerlessness to do anything about it. So he's acknowledging his sin. He's expressing repentance. We don't know for sure who, who wrote this psalm. It could have been David. And if it was, we know from our studies in 1 Samuel that he had his fair share of more failures. And we haven't even got to 2 Samuel yet. But it may not have been David. And, and actually, it doesn't matter in the sense that this is the experience of, of every Christian. Like the psalmist, we fail. We sin. We doubt. We forget. We neglect. We sink sometimes down to real depths. And part of the Spirit's work in our lives is to open our eyes to that, to make us aware of it, to help us acknowledge our sin and to cry out in repentance. Charles Spurgeon said of these verses, though the psalmist was under a painful sense of sin and so was in the depth, his faith pleaded in the teeth of, un of conscious unworthiness. For well he knew that the Lord's keeping his promise depends upon his character and not upon that of his erring creatures. So, friends, if you've felt like this, if you feel like this now, you're not alone. And, and by the way, if you're here today and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, first of all, it's wonderful that you're here. Um, but this is the first step to being forgiven by God. Because in order to be forgiven, you need to admit that you need forgiveness. Jesus said it, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. You don't go to a doctor if you think there's nothing wrong with you. And you won't cry out to God for forgiveness until you recognise that you need forgiving. You have to confess your sin. And you have to accept there's nothing you can do about it. That's the first step. And that's what the psalmist does in verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one. And if that was the end of the psalm, it would be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? Be a bit of a downer. But then we come to verse four. I look at verse four. This is a great, great verse. But, but with you, there is forgiveness. This is the crux of the whole psalm. And this is the truth at the center of our Christian faith. God Himself offers forgiveness. He doesn't expect us to earn it because He knows we can't. And so He has always been a God of grace and mercy. When you Read through the Old Testament and you see how often the people of God messed up. They let 
God down, they let themselves down, they let each other down, they let everyone down. It's very clear that these people are not achieving their own righteousness. Matthew preached last week on Psalm 145, which has those famous words, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Those are Old Testament words. We read them first in Exodus, actually, way back at the start of the Old Testament. Yahweh has always been a God of grace and compassion who loves to forgive those who confess and repent of their sin. Living on this side of the cross, we have the privilege of understanding how that works because the truth is that, you know, in a sense, God does keep a record of sins, doesn't he? He sees sin. He hates sin. He's a God of love. He's a God of justice. And so he cannot let sin go unpunished. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't say, I'm going to keep a record of that. Don't know about it. And that's what we want. We want justice. We don't want the wrongs of this world to be overlooked or glossed over. There's too many wrongs that need justice, aren't there? But the wrongs of this world include our wrongs as well. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so how can God both punish sin and forgive sinners at the same time? And the answer, of course, is the cross. Jesus lived the life we could never live and died the death that we should have died in order to take the punishment for our sin. And so trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is how a sinner like me and like you, with a record of sin that we can do nothing about, can be forgiven by a just and righteous God. We sang earlier, because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and pardon me. And that is how the psalmist can say, but with you, there is forgiveness. And that is what makes the change from despair to hope, from shame and guilt to confidence and assurance. And friends, we all need to hear that this morning. Some of us will be feeling the despair of verse one right now. Some of us are in the depths. We need to cry to the Lord. We need to confess our sins. We need to express our repentant heart. But then we need to accept the forgiveness that has been won for us by Jesus. Because it is true that our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. I feel we need to terminate here. Praise the Lord. So many say. You would all say, praise the Lord. So how do we respond to this mercy, this grace, this forgiveness? Again, look down at verse four second half but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you now some of the more literal bible translations use the word fear in this verse so the king james for example says but with you there is forgiveness so that thou mayest be feared which is interesting because the way that we tend to use the word fear doesn't seem to make sense in in that context surely you would fear god before you were but once you've been forgiven, you don't need to fear him anymore, right? That would be logical. But I think that's where this NIV translation helps us with the word reverence. God is to be revered. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's compassionate. Yes, he's abounding in love. But at the same time, he is almighty. He is the creator of heaven and earth, as Sam said at the start. 
He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He's worthy, therefore, of our praise, our worship, our respect, our reverence, and in that sense, our fear. You don't mess about with God. Rico Tyne says, you think of the sea. He loves the sea. We love playing in the sea. You don't mess about with the sea. The sea can kill you. It's dangerous. It's actually why uh, C.S. Lewis's representation of Jesus in the Narnia Chronicles is Aslan the Lion is such a brilliant illustration. Um, remember this conversation Mr. Beaver has with, with Susan and she finds out that, that Aslan is a lion. Man. So Mr. Beaver says Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Still so good. It's a great story. And our Lord is not safe in that sense. But he is good. And he's the king. And so it's right for forgiven sinners who've understood something of the depths of their sin. And by contrast, the grace and mercy of a perfect and righteous God to revere him. And to express that reverence in worship and in service. Verse four, we can with reverence serve him. And so we commit to serve. And just you know, in the New Testament, we see this principle again and again. Uh, one of my favourite verses in the, in the whole Bible is Romans 12, verse 1. Because Paul takes 11 chapters to unpack, really, these first four verses of, of Psalm 130. He, he lays out the gospel, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And then he says in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's great mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Serve God. It's the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the New Testament. Now, what does that look like? Well, in one sense, it looks different for every single one of us. Because God has made each one of us unique with our own character, our own life experiences, our own circumstances, capacity, gifts. And that's brilliant. Uh, our service shouldn't look the same. It doesn't need to be outwardly impressive. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And throughout the Bible, he chooses people who are unimpressive by worldly standards to accomplish mighty things in his strength. And that means each one of us, whether we feel gifted or not, whether we feel strong or not, can serve God in the circumstances we're in, as the people we are, with the people we know. The only requirement you need is a desire to serve God in response to his mercy and dependence on him as you do so. So our service looks different, but in another sense, our service should look the same uh, because it should be sacrificial. However you serve God, it should cost you something, so time, money, comfort, energy. I mean, that's how we express love for people, isn't it? I show love for my kids if I spend time with them at the end of a hard day when I'd rather have an early night. Um, I show love for my wife by watching the romantic comedy that she wants to watch rather than a good film. Um, we, we, I don't know, there's a few gents here who understand what I'm saying there. 
Um, we show love for our church family by, by getting here early to set out chairs or preparing the Sunday school class or serving coffee or, or checking in with someone we notice hasn't been here for a few weeks or praying for people or giving money or attending home group to encourage people when we're, we're exhausted. We show love for our community by loving our neighbours in practical ways and, and where we can, telling them of the hope that we have in Jesus. Our service looks different for each of us, that's right, but in the sense that it should cost us something, uh, it should look the same. Alistair Begg comments that those who are in Christ are called to a life of service. It's not that we're all called to Christ, but only some go on to serve. Service, he says, is an integral part of Christian discipleship. Whether a Christian is called to serve as a preacher or teacher of God's word, a Bible study leader for the youth, a volunteer in the creche, a witness in their factory or office, raising children at home, or caring for an elderly parent, or something else entirely. God call, God's call to service equally applies. But let's be honest, uh, serving sacrificially doesn't come naturally to human beings, and if you've noticed that. Instinctively, we, prepare, we prefer to be served rather than to serve. There's a, a very interesting exchange between two disciples, James and John, in Mark 10, when they, they've heard that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And somewhat unbelievably, they then go and ask him whether they can sit next to him in glory. They're not thinking about sacrificial service. They're, they're thinking about personal gain about self-promotion, about status, about respect. And Jesus says to them, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We follow a servant king. But how do we do that then? How, how do we serve God by serving others for the long term in a way that really goes against our natural instinct? Well, the short answer is the Holy Spirit helps us. Uh, he changes our hearts to make us want to love God and want to love our neighbour as ourselves. And so therefore prayer is an essential part of sacrificial service. If you're feeling overwhelmed by serving, you need to pray. Ask for strength or ask for guidance to know what you should step aside from. Equally, if you're lacking the desire to serve God sacrificially, and you can you recognize that, you can, use, you can see you're becoming a bit lazy, you don't want to do it anymore. Pray, ask for zeal, ask for a loving heart, ask for the right priorities in your life. If you want to serve, but you're not sure how to do it, pray. Ask God for opportunities for ways that you can use the gifts that he's given you. And then obviously speak to Claire Reynolds, she'd love to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a great book, this is one of my favorite books, uh, Serving Without Sinking. This, this book is great, whichever category you're in, overwhelmed, lacking a bit of drive, not sure how you can get involved. This is a brilliant book for you to read, to kind of reorder your priorities, Serving Without Sinking, John Hindley. But service is, is for all of us. 
But as well as prayer, the, the psalm, this psalm particularly gives us two motivations I want to pick out. We've seen the first already, actually, gratitude. We've seen how accepting the forgiveness of God changes our despair into joy. And when we appreciate how much we've been given, what mercy we've been shown, what it cost to rescue us from hell, how can we not want to respond in service? When we've understood the depth of Christ's love for us, how can we not go on to show that love to other people? But the other motivation is, is hope. Because the grace and mercy of God achieves our forgiveness and inspires us to serve. But thirdly, it enables us to wait with hope. We'll look at verse five and six. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning the psalmist is waiting in hope and you know biblical waiting is different to how we often think of waiting for us waiting is often a passive thing isn't it you go to the waiting room you just kill time until they finally call you in to the dentist uh you, you wait for the bus you know i mean nowadays we have our phones in the olden days kids you literally had to wait with nothing to do whatsoever to wait there to stand up stare into space or even have a conversation with someone but but you, you have to wait. Um, but biblical waiting is, is busy. It's active. You, you get a sense of active waiting that you, my whole being waits. He's engaged in his waiting. And the line, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, repeated. You know, the watchman would have been alert. Nighttime is dangerous. Morning brought safety. So he's scouring the horizon, anticipating those first rays of the sun. And with that kind of hope and anticipation, the psalmist is awaiting the Lord. And the source of his hope, notice, is the word of the Lord. The word which contains the promises of God. The very promises that he then proclaims in verses 7 and 8 to the people of Israel. He says, Israel, put your, your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So you see, the word reminds him and the people of the transforming power of God's grace. That his love is unfailing because it's not based on what they do for him, but on what he has done for them. That with him is full redemption. It is not in doubt because it flows from his grace and mercy and has nothing to do with their performance. And that he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins, no matter how far they've fallen. If they admit their sin, if they cry out for repentance, then they can be forgiven by a gracious God. And that means they don't wait in fear. They don't wait in despair. They don't wait in doubt. They wait in hope. And they can be as sure about the Lord returning to redeem them as the night watchman is sure of the coming dawn. And these words are as true for God's people now as they were then. If our redemption was based on our own efforts, trying to live a righteous life, trying to serve God, not in response to his grace, but in order to impress him somehow, to make sure the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then we would have every reason to be waiting in fear or in doubt or in despair or possibly in pride if we can do really well, but delusional pride. 
But our redemption is based on Christ's work on the cross. And so it is certain. And so we also can wait with hope. But, you know, without his word, we forget that. We can start to doubt it. We can start to slip back down towards the depths. It's in his word that you will find hope because his word will remind you that your hope is in Jesus. So friends can ask you how you're doing with reading God's word. How are your quiet times at the moment? Uh, summer can be a, a tricky time for doing devotions with the usual routines on hold. Holidays are happening a bit up in the air. But if you've fallen out of the habit of regularly reading God's word, and trust me, you won't be the only one, can I urge you to pick it up again? Sam sometimes sends around recommendations of, of Bible reading. So I wonder if we could do that again uh, in the next email or something. But, but, you know, pick up one of those recommendations. Use a resource. If, if you're not in a home group or you more or less stop attending, can I urge you to join in again when we start back in September? Speak to Sam or Tim if you need to. Get, get involved. Because every opportunity you take to spend time in God's word will remind you of the hope that we have in Christ. So friends, that, that the grace and mercy of God is the power that achieves that forgiveness and so lifts us from the despair of sin. It's the power that inspires us to sacrificial service uh, and it's the power that enables us to wait with hope until the Lord takes us to be with him or comes to wrap things up. And through Christ, we have access to that power, which is pretty awesome. And I think beats whatever the Olympians said at the start. So let's acknowledge our sin, uh, express repentance, accept the forgiveness that Christ has won for all of us who believe, serve the Lord sacrificially out of love and gratitude, and wait in hope until Jesus returns, drawing strength and assurance from the promises of his word. For with the Lord is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve him. And thanks to Jesus, he himself will redeem his people in all their sins. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to hear our voices this morning. We acknowledge with the psalmist that if you were to keep the record of sins, we could stand. We confess that we are unrighteous people. We don't live up to our own standards, uh, let alone yours. And so we thank you. And we praise you for your grace and your mercy. That means with you there is forgiveness. We thank you that, that we understand how this works through the cross how you could both punish sin and rescue sinners. And so we praise you for Jesus, our servant king. Help us to respond to your grace with lives of sacrificial service, whatever that looks like for each one of us. And help us to be people of the word as we wait in hope for Christ's return. And we ask that in his precious name. Amen. Amen.